Hello, everyone. I'm Hannah, Head of Writer Development at Substack. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are excited to welcome you to a live briefing and Q&A about how to navigate the pandemic with kids presented by Substack and featuring Professor Emily Oster and Doc Dr. Caitlin Jettelina with Chrissy Farr moderating. The two areas where people's opinions are strongest and most divided today are probably COVID and what's best for their kids. So we expect and welcome a lot of differing viewpoints here. But we built Substack to be a place that embraces differences in opinion, and we're holding this discussion in the same spirit. So thank you for coming and being part of a productive dialogue. Our panelists today are experts in parenting, data science, epidemiology, and healthcare innovation, and we're proud that they're all publishers on Substack. Emily Oster is professor of economics at Brown University, publisher of the newsletter Parent Data, and author of Expecting Better and Crib Sheet. And her work focuses on health economics and statistical methods and on analyzing the data behind choices made in pregnancy and parenting. Caitlin Jettelina is Assistant Professor of Epidemiology at the University of Texas Health Science Center and the publisher of Your Local Epidemiologist on Substack, whose work focuses on healthcare outcomes, access, and public health. And moderator Christina Farr is a health tech lead for Omer's Ventures and former health reporter for CNBC and the publisher of Second Opinion on Substack. To start, Chrissy will be moderating a briefing by Professor Oster and Dr. Jettelina, and then we'll move to a live Q&A. We also asked registrants to share in advance questions they'd like to hear discussed. And as a parent myself, I was incredibly moved reading all of them, all of us wrestling with so many smart, challenging, and scary questions, just trying to figure out how best to protect our kids in truly extraordinary circumstances. So thank you all for that, for showing up today to support this kind of conversation and for all your excellent questions, which we hope this event might help answer. You can also type questions into the live Q&A box in Zoom, and we'll try to get to as many as possible. Without further ado, I will pass the virtual mic to Christina, Emily, and Caitlin. Thank you so much for the, the warm introduction. Um, we're all very excited to be here, and, and thanks to Substack for hosting us. I am in complete agreement that the quality of the questions that have already come in have just been fantastic. So I'm going to make sure that we spend a lot of time today getting to them. And we talked ahead of time and, and we really wanted to embrace this panel as both kind of experts in the space. Um, Caitlin and, and Emily are, are incredible as epidemiologists and as academics, but also as parents of young kids ourselves. And many of you listening in are, are also parents. So I'm going to start on a timely note um, because we saw some news today from Pfizer just a couple of hours ago saying that data had been submitted to the FDA about the COVID vaccine in kids ages 5 to 11, and they said this data was, was highly favorable. So Caitlin and Emily, let's get started with that. Um, what was your take from, from just seeing the news today? Caitlin, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push this to you to start. <laughs> yeah, no, as a parent, I'm excited that this is finally in the limelight of a discussion. You know, I am cautiously optimistic, though. Before Delta, there was some talk at the FDA that the Pfizer vaccine for kids needed to go to full licensure. So what that means is they would need six months of follow-up data. But because of Delta and because of the, the raging pandemic right now, 
Pfizer, I think, is a bit hopeful that they'll go for an EUA, which means that they only need two months of follow-up data. So this morning announcement meant that Pfizer has sent their data to FDA. The reason I'm a little cautious to be too excited is because they didn't submit an EUA. They just submitted the data. And this is very different on the process of what happened with adults and even adolescent vaccines. So to me, this means that the FDA and Pfizer are still discussing whether there's going to be an EUA or not. And we should hear what they decide behind closed doors in a couple of weeks. I'm hopeful that there will be an EUA for kids. But again, just just a little more cautious than a lot of the headlines were this morning. Yeah, I will say I I had not put together what Kaylin just said, but I had a moment of like, well, but they didn't ask for anything like what they're just giving the data. And so that is clarifying for me. I will say, I think, you know, this is a a little bit of a complicated dance for these guys because there is more anxiety about vaccinating younger kids than there is there was about vaccinating older adults. And I think that they're trying very hard to make it very clear how careful the FDA is going to be about safety and so on. And I think pushing to full approval is actually not going to make them any particularly more careful. I don't think we're going to learn anything about that, but there's a messaging piece of it. And so I'm hoping that there will be an outweighing of the fact that, yes, you know, there is still quite a lot of cases and there are a lot of parents who are really, you know, pretty desperate to to vaccinate their kids. So Fauci has said Halloween is a possibility. Um, You know, I know that Emily, you've suggested maybe not Halloween. No, no, I suggested Halloween. I think I'm I'm into Halloween. I promised my 10 year old Halloween. I'd, so I'm 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 in it. I'm in it to Halloween. <laughs> Caitlin, do you agree that that Halloween seems realistic? So if all goes well, uh, yes. If all goes as planned, we want to go with the EUA. I would say plus or minus a week from Halloween is very fair. Where that timeline will change is if this is authorized for emergency approval or not, and we should we should be hearing about that decision in the coming weeks. So Caitlin, you and I are are moms of even younger kids. You have a one and a two-year-old. I have an eight-month-old. What do you think the timeline looks like for for kids that age um, under five for vaccines? Yeah, that's even harder to estimate. Uh, You know, we're still waiting on even the clinical trial data for that to come through for Pfizer. So I don't know. I'm I'm optimistic for maybe Christmas, (laughs) but I I, I'm I'm hoping that the uh, five to eleven vaccine goes through without any hiccups, and then that means we're next in line, um, and hopefully it'll be soon after. Great. Okay. I'm going to shift slightly to a question around kind of vaccines and and just getting parents to get enthused about the prospect in kids. We've seen some surveys come out showing that parents of kids, you know, are still, some of them feel like they want to watch weight a little bit more. There's definitely some some hesitancy. Other parents are very gung-ho and they're the first in line to get their kids vaccinated. So do either of you have ideas about how we can just increase enthusiasm among parents about about vaccines? Is there anything that we can do that we haven't already been doing? I would say, you know, I think when I talk to people about this, the sort of two things that I try to emphasize are, are, you know, number one, you should vaccinate your kid because it will make them less likely to get COVID. And there are risks to having COVID, even if kids don't typically get seriously ill, they could. And there's also, you know, potential long-term. So like, sometimes I'll frame this as like, 
you know, eventually your kid is going to have either COVID or the COVID vaccine. And so you would like their first exposure to it to be the vaccine because that is a better wage for your first exposure to go. But I also think there's a there's a pitch around protecting others. And I think Kaylin can probably speak more to this than I do. But, you know, really, like this is a way to protect the older adults in your family, people who are more at risk for breakthrough infections, you know, the community at, at large. And I think that is a, a pretty important pitch. But I also think, I'll see sort of one last thing, which I think we need to be a little gentle about this. And that in fact, like there will be some people who day one are going to be lining up. Like it's Halloween. We're lining up for the for the vaccine. You know, is it open on Sunday? Halloween's a Sunday. Like there will be people like that. And there'll be a lot of, maybe millions of people who are in that space. And if someone says, look, I just don't feel like 2,300 kids is enough. I really want to see more data. We're going to get that data. It's going to be, you know, that data is going to be available three weeks from when the vaccine is. And so I think, you know, I think there's a, there's a kind of edging into this and pediatricians are going to be really, really important uh, in that messaging. Yeah, I, I completely agree with Emily. You know, I I think a lot of kids and even adults want to hear that this pandemic will end. <laughs> One way to get this pandemic to end is for everyone to get the vaccine. And, you know, a lot of parents are saying, hey, can I use it as a mask incentive maybe? So, you know, my 10-year-old doesn't want to wear the mask anymore. If they get vaccinated, could they take that off? And I think that's a really important discussion to have with the pediatrician on an individualized level. And I, I agree with Emily, you know, so yeah, 25% of parents are lining up their kids when it comes out on Halloween, you know, but 75% of them aren't. And so we really need to be empathetic and very patient with those parents to walk them through their fears and um, try and show them at least through the data what we're seeing in real time. And, you know, after a while, just like adults, more and more people will get them. It'll take time and a lot of empathy when having those conversations, too. And how do you both feel about mandates in schools, both for the kids and for the teachers? Do you think that would be a step that, you know, would get us to, to much higher rates of, of vaccination? So I, I think the question is vaccine mandate or mask mandate. So I'm 100% for mask mandates. Um, we just saw data last week that they work really well. They're not perfect, but they work really well in reducing transmission in schools. I think that mandates for kids, now I, I do agree with the mandates for teachers, for adults. The mandate for kids is a little more difficult. Um, I was very happy when Los Angeles Unified School District did it, but we need to approach this with a lot of caution because this isn't a zero risk, and we actually don't even know the risk of myocarditis yet. And so what I would want to see is I want to see this data come out um, in real time, uh, in real world effectiveness. What is the risk of myocarditis for those under 11 compared to the risk of myocarditis from COVID, for example? You know, that's going to take a few months of data. And then after I see that and I see that the benefits greatly outweigh the risks, which we hope, then I'm all for it. I think that just starting mandates right when EUA is um, authorized won't be the right route. 
Yeah, 100% on board with that. I do think that there is a, a sort of mask vaccine trade-off that we're going to want to think about with kids. You know, I would like to see us move towards allowing vaccinated kids to remove masks once vaccines are available, at least in areas with relatively low transmission. I think it is both an incentive and also from, you know, from a public health standpoint, there's going to be some point at which that makes sense to do. But I, and I think a mandate for teachers makes a lot of sense. I think a mandate for students really needs to wait until we have a lot more data. Absolutely. That makes sense. A lot of the questions that I've had come in, a lot of the questions I have as a parent, it's so situation dependent. Like it's, should I put my kid on a plane? Should I send my three-year-old to preschool or is it not worth the risk? What about, you know, sending them them back to school in a hybrid environment or, or fully back to school? And so, you know, I think parents just feel this sense of confusion and, and where are the resources and where is that concrete information around, you know, when is the, the level of risk appropriate and not? Do you either have, you know, advice that is practical and hands-on here, or do you have favorite resources that you both use as, as parents and as experts yourselves to help navigate these sorts of questions? I think that it's the, you know, I, like most of what I have done in the last year is to try to help people make those decisions and, and sort of recognize that there isn't one kind of one decision that is, that is helpful there. I think the, the most data wise some ways, the biggest resource that I pull on is what the UK is putting out because they just have, they have been putting out just the best like comprehensive data about the pandemic. They've been much better than we have. And so some combination of kind of case rates from the US and sort of what are we knowing from, from the UK data um, is kind of where I, where I often go. But I, I think one thing that, you know, has become more of something we're talking about lately, and I think is important for parents to remember in this space is that kids, you know, it's different from saying we shouldn't vaccinate them, different from saying, you know, we shouldn't protect them from COVID. But in terms of serious illness, kids are really low risk. They just are really low risk. I mean, there was, you know, some, the UK came out with some recent data, which basically like, you know, relative to uh, vaccinated older adults, kids are still much lower risk, but age is just really, really important in this, in terms of serious illness, you know, not an infection overall, but in terms of serious illness. And I think there's some comfort for that in parents who are, where there's a sort of, some of the intense fear I think should, should dial down a little bit, which is different from saying the choices are easy. Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of the challenge is there is no guidance for parents in the United States. It's been silent from a CDC perspective, which I think is, it's not okay. And so yeah, I mean, that is why I really started this Substack to try and help think through what is risk tolerance, right? Everyone has a different risk tolerance and dependent on that tolerance is um, can be mapped to your activities as well as community transmission. And so um, it's really difficult to answer individualized questions. I mean, I get I'm sure Emily does too, thousands of questions a day about, you know, an uncle is unvaccinated. Can we go on the plane to visit him kind of stuff? And that, that's just really hard for us to answer because our risk tolerance is different. I mean, there is the possibility of severe disease if you are high risk, if you're in a high transmission area, if you're low socioeconomic status. And, and so those really have to be weighed together. And it's been difficult to try and navigate that even in my own individual world of my two girls and, and trying to make those decisions. So I don't know if I, I turn to any sources, but I, I try to provide that source in the ever evolving landscape because it's very difficult to navigate. Absolutely. I, I think we're all feeling it. And thank you for that. 
So I'm going to turn to one of the questions that that came through ahead of time. A parent asked that if they have been possibly exposed to COVID and they're concerned about, about a potential infection, how long should they isolate from their own kids and when should they get tested? And then do they need to see more than one negative test result? So I'm assuming that the parent is vaccinated. So if the parent's vaccinated and they were exposed, but they do not have symptoms, they do not need a quarantine. They probably should get a test in about three to five days after that exposure. But if they're not showing symptoms, they're good to go, according to the CDC. Now, if that test and if it's a PCR test at five days comes back positive, or they start getting symptomatic and then they go get a test, it's recommended that they quarantine for 10 days and then get another test. And after that, they'll be good to go. I think that answered your question. It's complicated. I understand this is going to be one of those, like, here's a thousand questions for Caitlin, but let me ask a related question, which is, let's say I'm exposed I at, at a location away from my children. So I have yet to see my kids, but I have ex- I have been exposed, but I'm a fully vaccinated person. And I'm worried that if I come home to my kids and then I turn out to have COVID, then they will have to quarantine for 14 days. So maybe I want to wait and not expose them in case I turn out to be COVID infected. What do you think? I mean, I think that my number one question is, can you quarantine from your kid for 14 days? I certainly can't. My husband would go crazy. So yeah, I mean, if you want to be the safest you can be, I would certainly then get a test and not come home yet. I think a lot has been lost with this whole viral load that vaccinated people still have the same viral load. They do have the same viral load as unvaccinated. The key though, is that viral load doesn't mean infectious load. So those that are vaccinated have a much less, they have the same viral load, but less infectious than unvaccinated. And so even if you're exposed and you have the vaccine, your chances of bringing it home, giving it to your kid, getting symptomatic are much lower than unvaccinated. Yeah. And I guess I, I think the the sort of piece of this that's that those of us with school age kids have struggled with. And part of the reason why I am personally so enthusiastic about the vaccine is that I actually in that scenario wouldn't be so worried that my kids would get COVID, but just that they would miss two weeks of school. And so I think that there's there's a little bit of a of a kind of we're surrounded by the quarantines. And that may be a little bit of the answer to the question, like what is a reason to get your kid vaccinated, which is that it will lower the quarantine requirements. And Emily, to that point, um, you've been speaking out a lot about reopening schools and and have been kind of in favor of it. Um, And (laughs) to quote the New York Times, they called you both a hero and a a villain in the eyes of some. So this topic is obviously an emotional one for people and and you've come at it kind of armed with, with data. Looking back at that and some of the reactions to it, have do you have any regrets? Would you have done anything differently or, or do you stand by it? No, I mean, I think we should have had more schools open last year. And I think that we're seeing some of the fallout of that this year when we're starting to see some what it is like for kids to come back and then also some of these issues around around learning loss and so on. So, you know, I think that the in the end of the day, the data last year at least showed that, you know, schools could have been open safely. There are ways to safely open them. And I think this year, you know, we have seen that schools that have adopted the mitigation strategies suggested by the CDC have largely had a, a sort of safe reopen. I think it's been somewhat unfortunate that many schools have not adopted those. And I think there we've seen more of a bumpier ride with quarantine and so on. Although in general, I think actually it's gone, actually it's gone better than I thought it would. 
Yep. Yep. That makes sense. And, you know, another question for you kind of while we're on the topic is, and this is one that's, that's come through from, from our audience is do we as parents, and I know, I know you do because of your platform, but um, just parents out there in general, do they have any kind of voice or ability to contact the FDA, contact health officials and, and kind of beg them to, to consider an EUA for the vaccine for kids or anything else that, that kind of feels like it would, it would increase their level of feeling reassured and, and safe. Yeah, I don't know, Caitlin, actually, that's more of a question for, for you. I'd also be interested in what he has to say about the schools, but I don't know whether we can call the FDA. I, I don't think we can call the FDA. <laughs> they would be inundated with calls. I will tell you, they feel the pressure. Um, whether it's pressure from editorials in like the New York Times, if it's pressure from, you know, Twitter, they know the pressure is there. I think they are really put in a hard spot of that pressure and having the lack of data in the United States. It's incredible to me that we live in the United States and we don't know how many group breakthrough cases there are by vaccine. I mean, it's just, it's terrible. And so I don't think you can call FDA, but there are a lot of advocates for parents right now that want the vaccine and they know this. It'll be very interesting what happens in the next few weeks. If they decide not to go with an EUA, there will be an uproar and they will hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Another one for you, Caitlin, based on other vaccine trials, would you expect uh, vaccine immunity to wane in the pediatric population at the same rate as the adult population? And this is another one that's that's come through from, from our audience. Yeah, that's an excellent question. And for COVID, we have no idea. When we look at other vaccines, like the flu vaccine, for example, it wanes a whole lot slower than for adults. And so that's why, you know, we encourage kids to get the flu vaccine right away and maybe tell adults to wait a month or two so that they're fully protected in the, the rise of flu. And we already started to sort of see that with adults with 65 plus, it's certainly waning and those under 65, not really, but it's starting to be there. So there probably is an age effect, but we, we won't see that until we see the data, unfortunately. I also think there's been a little bit of a kind of like we want to be careful about this messaging because there's a sort of like immunity is, is waning, particularly immunity from any infection, but it's not waning to zero. And a message this morning and somebody said, you know, why should I vaccinate? My kid only works for six months, which is like, you know, suggest like that's that's not true. You know, there are many things that are that are wrong with that. But I think we've sort of gotten into a little bit of a space where people are kind of thinking of these vaccines as like kind of they just only work a little bit for a little while, which is really not uh, really not consistent with what we're seeing in the data. Definitely the overarching message here is vaccines. Yes, <laughs> do it. Yes. No question. So a lot of questions are coming through on masks and kids. Do you have your own kids wear masks outdoors? Do you have them wearing masks indoors? When do you when do you yourself kind of wear a mask and what scenarios in, in front of your kids? Any thoughts there? And, and feel free to weigh in, you know, both from your personal experiences as parents and then also kind of what you're seeing in the data. Yeah, I mean, I can jump in. Uh, I have a little over a two-year-old, um, which is almost impossible for those that have two-year-olds for her to wear a mask. Um, she'll only wear it when her puppy is wearing a mask. And so we work with that on the airplane, for example. And so that that's really difficult to do. And then my one-year-old can't wear a mask. And I I wear a mask. I wear a mask a lot. 
in the grocery store, at work. I work at a hospital, have to, you know, really everywhere to normalize it. And then also to, you know, help protect my kids as much as I can, as much as possible. Um, A mask isn't a big burden to me. And quite frankly, I didn't get sick in the past year. Uh, And so that was also a, a big benefit to me as well. Outside, no, you know, I'm very comfortable with outside that there's a lot of air filtration um, with aerosols, et cetera. And uh, I have a a medium risk tolerance, right? So if I didn't want the possibility of ever to get COVID, I would wear a mask outside, but that's just not who I am. My kids are older. They have no problem wearing a mask. They wear it at school. They don't wear them outside, um, except when they forget to take them off, which is actually fairly common. So, I mean, I think they have sort of normalized this thing. I think the the in-school masking has actually, you know, been, it's really been fine. And, you know, particularly for, for kids in this age range, like they kind of get used to it. I think they're happy to not have to do them outside at school, but it hasn't been a huge issue for my kids, given their sort of ages and personalities. I think it's much harder for the much younger kids. Um, yeah, I wear a mask at work and in the grocery store and in indoor places. One of the things I think will be interesting to follow on is, is like, I wore a mask. I was on an airplane for the first time recently. And I wore a mask, of course, as required on the airplane. I will always be wearing a mask on the airplane now. And I think part of that for a lot of us is like, actually the airplane is a place you get sick, like putting aside COVID, you get other stuff on the airplane, on the subway. And so I think we will see, particularly during sort of winter respiratory season, at least some people kind of voluntarily continuing to do that you know, because I think we learned it's not that now I have all these masks and, um, and I don't, I don't want to get the norovirus. I am so with you on that. I am like permanently converted to wearing a mask on flights and on the subway where I would, yeah. you know, always catch a, catch a cold. It just feels like a very small thing to do to, to not get sick potentially. So, you know, while we're on the topic of, of kind of masks and schools, People have talked about, oh, you know, wearing a mask, is that going to kind of increase my child's lack of comfort with, you know, seeing human faces and things like that? I've seen kind of all of these discussions out there in ether. And I think ultimately the experts are saying wear the mask, (laughs) but that there is a very genuine, I think, great kind of set of questions still that people are talking about with just the mental health effects of this pandemic on on kids outside of kind of these specific examples because of, you know, being at home all the time, not getting to spend time with with other kids. And then also just like feeling the weight and the burden of like living through a pandemic as a young child and and the fears that you might feel around your parents and your grandparents. And do either of you have advice on that? Like how can other parents manage it? How are you guys managing it with your with your own kids? And do you think that this is going to be something that we'll all be dealing with in the long run? I, I think I would sort of fully separate these issues of kind of masking from this other stuff. I don't think that masks are a significant contributor to mental health issues or, or any of this other stuff for most kids. I don't think that's a central problem. However, the mental health impacts of the pandemic on adults, on kids, on sort of a whole range of, of people, I think are going to be very significant and are something that we are going to be understanding better over time that we are going to be continuing to grapple with. And that's, you know, the mental health impacts of sick or, you know, having lost family members, having sick family members. It's the mental health impacts of of school closures, of school disruptions, of, you know, of sort of the, the life that the isolation of the last year, like all of those things are real. And I think there's a role for for sort of thinking about policy that will face up to that and try to address it. But, you know, it's a very significant problem. I'll just put it out there. 
I mean, yeah, I agree with Emily. I think that we've also not yet processed the trauma to, uh, to a full degree. Uh, you know, I, I think at least in the South where I am, we're still in very much survival mode and there's going to be a lot to process for adults and how we help kids process that, um, will be key as well. You know, I am in a little different situation because both my kids basically were pandemic babies. Um, this is normal to them. My girls put masks on their dolls, you know, so, um, it's very normal to them. Kids are very resilient, but there's a point where they can process this and they see a lot of the battlegrounds, for example, at PCA, you know, parent teacher conferences or whatever, and that will certainly need to be addressed in the years to come. Yeah, absolutely. And and while we're kind of thinking about just processing the last few years, one question we've had come in, which I'm going to read it to you because I, I think it's a great question. What can we as Americans do to ensure that in the next pandemic, the communication about the science is as accurate as possible and holistic, not a, quote, craptastic mess, which has been part of why misinformation has spread? So I think we'll start with with Emily on this one. The messaging has been problematic. Agree with that. I'm not sure I would have used the word craptastic. I don't think it's fair. You know, we were very unprepared. I mean, one never is really prepared uh, for for a pandemic, but I think, you know, we were very unprepared. It wasn't really clear, you know, whose job anything was. And, you know, I think for me, probably the biggest fail sort of writ large in communication was the desire to tell people that we were certain when we were not. And so I think many of our mistakes early on and also later on were made when recommendations were made that were too extreme or were too, were sort of like we, we whiplashed between things, you know, masks or don't, don't wear masks, wear masks, don't wear them, wear them. And sort of back and forth as if each thing, we are a hundred percent sure that that is exactly the right thing. And I think that comes from a desire to give people clear guidance And that is broadly good to give people clear guidance, but it has to be weighed against the fact that we are not sure. And that when you give people clear guidance and then immediately switch to giving them a different, completely different, seemingly clear guidance, then you have lost them. You have lost their trust. And I think that that for me was probably the largest fail. And I would like to sort of think going forward, when we think about the messaging piece of addressing the next pandemic, how are we going to help people understand the way that we are learning? and how our messaging is reflecting what we are what we are learning rather than just trying to to sort of tell them exactly what to do because then they will not listen i think that's because we're facing a world of people who are not always going to listen to all the things that we that we say and we have to adapt our messaging for that realization yeah it, it 100% has to be in our pandemic respondents our preparedness for the future you know a lot of countries especially in the southeast asia did a lot better than the United States, for example, is because they've had epidemics before. Vietnam learned a lot from the SARS epidemic, so much so that they had an entire health communication plan and implementation before COVID landed on their ground. And the videos are amazing. They messaged it as, you know, the virus is the enemy, each other are not the enemy. Um, And so really getting on top of it, being really quick, it has to be part of it. This addressing misinformation has to be a part of it. 
And I wrote a post about it, I don't know, maybe a week or two ago that I was really disappointed when the White House did not include communication as one of their core goals for pandemic preparedness. This has been a goal at the WHO. Uh, They called it an infodemic. And it, it has to be, you know, we can have the best science, we can have the best data, we don't in the world. And if we can't communicate that in English, I'll say to the layman, then it's no good. And we, you know, we marry that with a very scientific, I I say this in respect, illiterate base. So we need to improve that in STEM. And then we also marry that with, we don't train scientists how to speak in English to Americans. And so those nuances are lost and that communication gap is further widened. And people don't know where to get information. A lot of anxiety. They throw up their hands in the air. They, one, stop listening to the ivory tower. And then, two, start filling their questions in with misinformation where they get information on YouTube, on Facebook, et cetera. So there's a lot to be learned. I think there's a lot that continues to be learned. And I hope that leadership in the United States eventually sees that, whether they want to or not. Yeah, I'll I'll share just from my own experience with this. When I was at CNBC, I had an idea to write a column about the scientific process and why scientists are allowed to change their minds because of new data. And this is a little different than politicians who we expect to be pretty consistent in their views. And um, I talked to a bunch of scientists and they all thought that it was sort of a silly idea for a post. But I remember that hundreds of thousands of people read it because it was to them, new information. And we don't we don't talk about these topics often enough. And, and I think for some people, it was an explanation of why they had been getting some, in their minds, conflicting guidance. But what was really happening was just we were learning more. And this was a, a new virus. And we didn't come to this completely 100% prepared. So that's another thing I, I just kind of learned in my, in my media role. And, and I hope to see more of, which is just kind of this back to basics explanation of how you know, science really works and how and how scientists approach problems. So totally agree with with both of you on that. So you've had a few questions that that seem a little bit more geared to, to Caitlin come through. Wondering if you have any thoughts on antibody tests for children. A lot of parents would love to know if their kids have been previously exposed and, and potentially had an asymptomatic case and and maybe even have some natural antibodies. It's a great question. So, I mean, antibody tests, they'll work. The challenge is that if you get a negative antibody test, that doesn't necessarily mean the the person doesn't have protection, right? So we focus a lot on antibodies, but we, you know, if the kid was exposed eight, nine, 10, 12 months ago, they may even have like a back pocket tool called um, B cells and T cells. And the antibody test doesn't pick that up. And this is actually what's driven a lot of the conversation at FDA about boosters, right? We're focused on antibodies, but what about this back pocket protection? And so, yeah, you can get an antibody test. If you get a positive, you know, there's some level of protection. If you get a negative, they still may have some level of protection. Um, We don't know for how long. Uh, We don't know if you get an antibody number, say you have a thousand on your test, if that's better than 200 on your test, we don't know a lot. And so that's why it's really just the best to assume that everyone, unless you have the vaccine, doesn't have protection and to continue to wear that mask because there's still a lot we don't know. Yeah, that's great advice. And then 
What about high-risk kids? Do you think there might be some kind of different process, maybe even an EUA for a younger child that that is at high risk for COVID and having a severe case of it? Or does that not kind of um, strike you as something that, that would likely happen? That's an excellent question. It certainly could happen if the FDA comes back and is like, hey, we only need an EUA uh, or we only want to, you know, decide to have this EUA for high-risk kids. That's certainly a possibility. I think I'd be very disappointed in that decision, um, but it's certainly possible. I, I wish I had a, a magic eight ball to tell you. I just don't know how it's going to end up. And so it's really important to, to watch how these next few weeks unfold. So Emily, as I've been kind of surveying my own mom friends, and many of them are really excited that I'm speaking with you in particular on this, especially given, you know, your huge presence on this topic. One question that just kept coming up over and over again was, what do I do if I've, if my kid seems like they have sniffles, seems like they have a cough, they don't have a fever, there's nothing obvious, they're not obviously very sick. And in the old days, I would have probably just sent them to daycare or sent them to school. But now I, I, I'm at a loss. And, you know, if you keep your kid home at the last minute, you may not have any other childcare. So it's a day off work. And, and parents are just weighing these decisions all the time. And they feel like they want to do right by other kids and other parents. But then where do you draw the line? Like, a, you know, what symptoms would be a flag for just this kid needs to stay home versus you know, my eight-month-old has the sniffles all the time and it's just kind of part of being a baby. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a this is tricky. I think that the sort of like public health answer is like your kid should stay home while they're sick until you can get them a test. And this is part of the reason that I think we need to have better access to rapid tests and a better understanding of how, um, you know, how people would use them and better access to PCR testing. My guess is where we are going to get to in a few months on this is, Basically, your kid is sick. You need them to have a COVID test. Conditional on having a negative COVID test, you can um, you can return. And my, you know, I think that that just seems not like an unreasonable thing to me. I think you know, if your kid has the sniffles and then they've been tested for COVID and they're negative, then they have a cold, and you know, you're going to send them to school and they're going to other kids are going to get that cold. And I, so I mean, I I don't have a great answer for this actually because I think it is a very in some ways, like you're, you're a little bit trading off your work time against sort of other people's work time in a way that you always were, right? That was always true when kids were going to school with the sniffles as part of like having your kid at daycare is that they're sick all the time. And some of that is development of immunity that actually has some sort of longer term benefits. It's, it's sort of taken on a different tenor at the moment. And I think the lack of availability of testing makes it more complicated because if you said like, look, this is going to happen, but then everybody's going to have access to tests kind of immediately, then it makes it a little easier. If it's like, I have to wait six days to get a PCR test, then it's harder. Caitlin, do you have any, any uh, great responses to this one? Uh, it's a really hard question to answer. Um, I do want to say though, I don't think we give enough credit to at-home antigen testing. You know, you can go to a Walgreens and, and get an antigen test. Uh, they are unfortunately expensive for some people. You know, it's probably $25 a test. And, you know, if your kid has sniffles every other week, it adds up. Binex at Walmart, $14 for a box of two. Walmart.com. Oh, there, there you go. So I don't know why we haven't had more of that conversation about testing. You know, there's a lot of emphasis put on masks. It's become so polarized and politicized. But there's also other really great mitigation measures like testing, like ventilation, that really we, we need to focus on. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that they can do an at-home antigen test. You know, the, the, it's not as accurate 
But if you get a positive on that, then maybe you go get a PCR test um, and it makes you have a bit different decision-making tree than you would having nothing. Yeah. I will say we have these, like I have a lot of these in my house and we actually use them with some, with some regularity just because it sort of allows that kind of layer of I don't know, confidence, I'm not exactly sure, but I think we should, you know, if we sort of organize that, and I know the Biden administration is interested in making these more available and less expensive, um, and I'm hoping we'll see more of that. Yep, I, I have them at home too. I think that they're just good to have on hand. So we've had some some questions again about this issue of long COVID. So, you know, we've said already that for most kids, it's most likely to be very mild if, if they do get COVID. And of course, there are exceptions, but that's what we've seen in the data. But what we don't know is the long-term effect of even a, a mild case. Caitlin, I'm going to ask you first on this one. Is there anything that, that you know, you're tracking related to this issue? How are you talking to, to parents about it? Yeah, it's again a really frustrating conversation to have because we are so limited to data. We have a very wide variety of studies that have come out so far. You know, some studies say 0% that there is no long COVID among kids. And other studies some come out, especially in Italy, saying 40% of kids have long COVID. So where is the truth? It's going to be somewhere in between. You know, we don't know. It's a really, really wide range I am not convinced that long COVID is nothing among kids. I think that it may be something, but certainly not at the high prevalence among adults that we're seeing. Um, You know, we're seeing a lot of even like brain mass reduction among adults that I just don't think we're going to see with kids right now. With that said, I don't know what the prevalence is. And With me and my kids, I don't want to gamble that. I'm not confident enough that long COVID isn't a thing. And so that's also another reason why I continue to wear a mask and try to get my toddler to wear a mask um, whenever possible because we're just not confident in the data yet. I think we're going to shift a little bit to pregnancy. Emily, you've written a book about it. Caitlin, something you've written about too um, on, on your Substack. Should pregnant women who, you know, it's increasingly sort of known that that they are kind of a more at risk group, um, should they be getting boosters? Yeah, I'm so I would like the answer to this, Caitlin. But let me just let me ask a version of the the sort of version of this that I'm thinking about. So so people ask first, you know, should pregnant women get vaccinated? And I think we can all agree that the answer is yes. And then particularly because pregnant people are more at risk, that, that that is a good idea. And I think the question that I've got that people have is you know, I would say I was vaccinated in February. I'm, you know, thinking about getting pregnant. I'm just early in my pregnancy. I anticipate that my current antibody levels are waning. Should I get a booster to ramp up my antibody levels so I can pass them to my babies so they can be protected in the first six months? And I think that's, that's the question that seemed to me like, like that could be true, but I don't have a great sense of the answer. So according to the FDA and CDC, pregnant people are considered high risk. And so they can go get a booster. They didn't say should go get a booster. They said can. Now, this comes back down to your risk tolerance level. Uh, If I was pregnant, hell yeah, I'd go get a booster yesterday. You know, pregnant people are very high risk. You know, that's another conversation we're not having. And not enough people are 
vaccinated, period. But I mean, I certainly would. There's very, very little risk to getting a booster, and there's a whole lot more benefit. And so to me, I would go get a a booster. Uh, I don't want to be in the ICU. I want to hold my kid um, when they're born. and, And if that means getting a booster for extra protection, I would. But that's me. <laughs> I don't, I don't I, it's a hard question to answer. Like, I find that answer so reflective of this whole conversation because, you know, your answer about like your own masking tolerance was like, I don't mask out. I wouldn't mask outside because, you know, he, sort of here is how I think about it, which I thought. And then in this case, it's so much of it is processed through our own risk tolerance and how we're thinking about it. I think that's in some ways just a really important thing for people to keep in mind that there isn't necessarily an answer to this. There is an answer that is dependent on some concept of your own sort of risk tolerance around these different features. Yeah, I think a lot of the answers we've been we've been getting here have been, you know, it depends. Each person should kind of, you know, make this decision for themselves. But here are some of the data that we have and here are some of the gaps. And this is what we're watching. And we would all like to have a set of rules that we can just follow. But it's very helpful to hear at least kind of how you both are thinking as parents and as people that are, are deep in the data that we do have. So we have time for one last question. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull the last one again from the audience. I've spent so much brain power on protecting my kids and my family from COVID over the past year and a half. Are there any other big public health risks for kids that we should be paying more attention to or should be thinking about instead? (laughs) I hate to pile on with with kind of yet more kind of fear and anxiety here, but I think that's a great question and good note to end on. Emily, do you want to join me? There are a lot of things that are riskier for kids than COVID in terms of serious illness, in terms of like the number of serious illnesses or death. And so in some ways, like, I'm not sure that I would say like, let's list all of the things that we should be more afraid of because I think that's like super productive. I do think that one of the things that will happen as a result of this is a heightened awareness of illness and a heightened sort of response to things, particularly respiratory illnesses like RSV and the flu. And I suspect that we will see more avoidance behavior and more sort of carefulness around those things for, for really the foreseeable future. So, you know, I think that there's, there's not, I wouldn't say like, go be afraid of more things. The way I'm framing it is we are going to be a little bit more cautious about these things. And I think that that's just part of the legacy of the pandemic. Yeah. And I I think that's also, you know, a silver lining of the pandemic too, is that we've become so much more aware, whether we want to or not, of the scientific process of data, of infectious diseases, how, you know, this isn't an individualized world that your actions impact your neighbors and your community as well. And, you know, this pandemic's not going to be the last. There's going to be more diseases. We're seeing that happen more and more with climate change, with globalization. And so I hope that we can learn from this in the United States specifically on how to better prepare for the next one and how to, you know, help parents make decisions for the next one and communicate that. And so we'll see. I am hopeful. I promise I'm hopeful. And, you know, COVID's going to go away. Every epi curve goes down. It's not going to be, I'm not going to say it's going to go away. It's not going to be controlling our lives every single day, but we're going to need some serious self-reflection and we'll see how that goes in the coming years. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us today. And a huge thank you to Christina, Emily, and Caitlin for your time. 
Uh, you can find their substacks at emilyoster.substack.com, your local epidemiologist.substack.com, and ovsecondopinion.substack.com, where subscribers can also find any future posts or discussions on these topics. And you can always check out our events page at Substack for other events from Substack. Thank you all for joining us and wishing you all a happy and healthy fall for you and your families.